When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. What's up, guys? Welcome to another episode of Bro History. It's Henry Zamoda, my good friend Danny Abdeljabar, and my other good friend, Joseph Solis Mullen. How's it going, buddy? It's going great. Thanks for having me back. Oh, it's a pleasure. It's a pleasure. Uh, before we get into this episode, though, everyone who's listening, you have to fill out that survey. We have a Survey Monkey survey. I know that's kind of repetitive, but there's a link in the show notes. And if you fill out the survey, it takes a couple of minutes. You just put in your demographic information. And you select bro history as like the as the podcast you're filling that out as well. So be sure to do that. And then just fill out the survey. And then there's a there's a chance that you can win five hundred dollars in Amazon dollars, which is worth more than like, you know, regular bank dollars. Notes, regular dollar dollars somehow, right? You're that that's you're you're a finance guy, Joe. That makes sense, right? It's perfectly sound. Might even be better. It might even, might even be, be better in the current inflate. Might even be better in the current inflationary environment. It it may even be better in the current inflationary. <laughs> you heard it, it here. An economist. So fill it out. So <laughs> fill out that survey. And uh, to be honest, it actually really does help this show out. So we need yeah. to do our housekeeping before we start this episode. But uh, I digress. Joe, thank you so much for joining us today. We are talking about. Of extremely interesting topic, Joe. Can I even can I say that you're writing a book about this right now, or can I introduce that, or is it still under wraps? Yeah, it's fine. I'm contributing a book chapter to a graduate textbook on the subject, so it's going to be due out next year. So can't quote anything from the book, but I can say that. Okay. Well, the very least we can speak about the topics and some of the themes of the book, which is which is uh, why we want to talk today because it's it's really. What you're writing about is like one of my most, I think Danny's as well. I'm speaking for you, Danny. It's one of like the core cruxes of our show of what we talk about. And that subject is nationalism and then the birth and the rise of the nation state. Because I myself just find it like one of the most interesting topics in the world. I kind of look at it and, and we, we recorded you know for 20 minutes before we, uh, or we were talking 20 minutes before we started recording this, but you know, it's so hard to understand because it's like a, an organism. There's no like clear structure of when a state started. But the way I kind of look at it in a way, maybe like science dorks are, are interested in like the Big Bang. That's how I'm interested in the origins and origins of the nation state. Like, how did this all come to be? So um, I guess I'll just lead this off and, and um, you know, ask you, you know, where does your interest in this? Well, I won't leave it off yet because I have to put a disclaimer a lot of times when people say they're writing books about nationalism, it's always some like really kind of activist driven book 
that's like about fascism. It's like five re- ways to tell fascism's taken over America. Like it's always written in that tone. And there's actually very little intellectual discussion about the topic of nationalism today. You honestly get more debate and more insight from like random ass Twitter accounts that have anime avatars uh, than like the average writer, (laughs) the average like writer who has uh, who like may write for the New York Times um, like that. um, Who's that? The historian out of uh, Yale University, Tim Snyder, who wrote a book like that. Oh, God, it's like 10 ways to spot fascism. But I digress. I guess where does your interest come into this? Like, where did you start getting interested on this topic? Well, it, it happened in the context of, of just sort of uh, a general study of everything, sort of uh, from the perspective of the, the liberal arts and, and sort of trying to understand uh, how we got to the present moment. And I was doing a lot of, and just the way my, my graduate degrees overlapped, I wound up spending a lot of time in the history department and I was really attracted to several types of books. And one of them was on books about state formation. And so several of Charles Tilley's books, um, Price's books, you know, I read uh, a lot of Marx's stuff. It was very, very interesting stuff. Uh, just seeing how these confluence of forces produce these moments of structural breakdown where previously stable arrangements uh, are disrupted. These are oftentimes very violent. It often results in the, the creation of new states, um, sometimes the resurrection of previous states in new guises, uh, you know, constituting different people, claiming to represent different people, uh, different ideological forms. And th- it's very much still with us today. Um, the process of, of the nation states being formed uh, and then being globalized, because of course this, this happened in Europe uh, from about 1500 on, but it has very complicated uh, and multifaceted uh, antecedents that, that are really uh, important to understand. Uh, and of course, it, it wound up being globalized. And so now you basically have a world of competing uh, you know, nation states. Uh, and some of the populations of these uh, artifacts of, of 19th century political thought, frankly, um, that don't fit well there. Uh, Iraq is a good example. Uh, of a state whose borders, which were, you know, carelessly or purposefully drawn in such a way as to not be very stable um, within with the population that it has. It's, and, you know, it, one of the things that also made me interested about it was being a child of the terror wars and seeing the efforts to build uh, liberal capitalist democracies in, in Afghanistan and Iraq and, and seeing the tremendous hubris and failure and just trying to understand whether or not that would even have been possible, um, which which I conclude it, it would not even have been possible, even if, as John McCain wanted us to, we'd stayed there for a hundred years. So, long story so, short. So maybe before we get into the deep, deep weeds here, uh, Joe, I, I'd love for you to um, kind of give us some ground rules, some definitions that we can all follow, because you know. Oftentimes, words like state and nation and nation state are used interchangeably, but but they do have very clear and distinct definitions, at least the way that you uh, you know are, are are writing about them. So I was hoping that maybe you can give us a rundown on what we're gonna mean when we talk about the state, the nation, and the nation state, uh, and or peoples or any other you know important definitions that'll help us in this conversation. Just that we're all level set. 
Sure, and, and some of these uh, vary conventionally, but I tried to make these definitions very general because in the chapter, I'm not trying to explain one specific nationalism or one specific state or one specific nation state. Um, I'm trying to take what is generalizable about very uh, individually specific uh, processes that eventually produce the same thing. So when I talk about the state, all I'm talking about there is, is a, a territorial political subunit. Um, so uh, not kingdoms, not empires, uh, not hereditary dynasties. These are, these are nation states. They have fixed boundaries, um, and the world is divided up between them, and, and they're thought to have rights vis-a-vis uh, -vis each other. Um, nation nation is, is easily the most fluid of these topics. Although nation-state being contingent upon nation, it is also a very unstable um, construct as well. Um, to be clear, I, there's, there was an academic who, whose video Henry sent me a lecture of, and he, he said this about the, na the term nation, and I think it's perfectly encapsulated. We need it, but it's not analytically rigorous. It is, it is not a very good term. It's hard to measure. So I mm -hmm. would just say it's a people bound together by any number of the following combination of things could be all of them uh, a common ideology uh, customs ethnicity invented traditions uh, a shared enemy hatred uh, any number that 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 definitely formed a strong basis for a lot of the post-colonial um, independence movements for example um, so any of those things like you can call yourself a nation it is in some sense subjective it is a matter of agreement it is a matter of Everyone acting as though it is so, even if we can't narrow something down super specifically. Um, there are some sorts of nationalism that, that get more well-defined, like there, there's civic nationalism, which tries to say um, our nation is going to be defined strictly by ideological terms. Mm -hmm. um, maybe some sort of institutional framework that follows from that. And then, of course, there's ethnic or uh, integral nationalism, which, which seeks to make a direct connection between... Uh, a people uh, and some sort of blood connection uh, that into a certain place. Uh, so, but it could be any combination of those things. And then a nation state is just when when I say that that's just the people of a state share the same sense of common national identity. Mm -hmm. So, uh, you know, Japan is a really good example of, of one where it's it's really I mean it checks pretty much all the boxes for what could make a nation and a state. So. And then versus, and then versus Canada, which is two nations in one state, because you have your French-speaking <laughs> population, and then right, you have yeah. your you have your English-speaking population. Um, but you know, there's there's so many different definitions, and there's been like there's been so much academic work and so much written on this subject. And there's um you know one of the the definition that that honestly that that always sticks to me is uh, Benedict Anderson's de definition, and we spoke about him before. Because he has his book, Imagine Communities, where basically he says that the nation as a whole is, is, is a social construct and it's an imagined community. And I actually, you'll figure out where I stole this from if you listen to the rest of this lecture but um, that I sent you that you just re referenced. But I always say the example of like when you go to a big university and you start saying, um, like Danny went to Rutgers, right. Rutgers Nation. We have Rutgers Scarlet has, Nation. Yeah. Ru yeah, Scarlet <laughs> Nation. Right. Rutgers has 
a, a undergraduate class of what 40,000 students yeah something like that roughly mm-hmm. like 40,000 students like a school like Michigan State what has 50,000 undergrad students something crazy like that right um there's no chance you could even know a school with 5,000 students like you wouldn't be able to know every single person and have a personal relationship so right. that becomes your imagined, like that is your community. It's still a social construct because you don't have personal relationships with all these different people, but you're mm-hmm. under the same banner of like Rutgers University, which makes you, you know, Scarlet Nation or right. Jets, Na- Jets Nation. Mm-hmm. Like I just ran yeah. into a Jet, like a, a guy who's like, hey man, you're a Jets fan, right? Because he saw me wearing a Jets uh, at the gym and, you know, there was some, some Jets, uh, you know, football uh uh, you know things on with the roster and he's like he started talking to me out of nowhere and we had like a 20-minute conversation we had it's just like these these small uh commonalities that y- unite each other um but it's 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 strange and it's like a good thing but also it can be a really scary thing at the same time especially when it's mechanized for some so, type of so violent action yeah question for joe here you know uh kind of piggybacking off of what Henry's saying here. Henry just uh, put out a, a an example of when, you know, that the nation is useful or at least nice, right? You know, he had to have a nice little conversation with a rando at the gym over the Jets because they're all part of the same imagined community of being in the Jets nation. So that's one of the useful. I was wondering if maybe you can describe a few times where the quote nation is like a useful or positive thing. And then maybe some of the opposite where the nation or the, you know, um, nation state is, is not a very useful or not a very nice thing. Well, thinking about the nation, I I think in many ways it's helpful to think of it as a vehicle of group survival. It's, it's something that needs to be preserved. Um, and it's only preserved by preserving its, its members. So, Mm -hmm. so in, in one sense, it, it contains both every possibility for good that you will do many things to help people you are otherwise unrelated to. You know, uh, can think of any number of everyday examples or more uh, dramatic examples. But at the same time, it also breeds perhaps a willingness to uh, do harm to others. Uh, if you are convinced that the survival of your particular group uh, is in danger. And so I, uh, I suppose that's that's where I would leave that. I think, you know, like like any social invention, it you know it can be used for great good, uh, but also it it can, uh, <coughs> you know, the the same rockets that carry us to Mars are going to fire hypersonic missiles that kill us all. So, you know, <laughs> it's, it's just it's a matter of choice. So tear so. down the nation state, then, right? <laughs> well, certainly, uh, you know, the the idea of interstate competition. One thing that if you take a long view of history, especially history, uh, over the course of about the last 700 years, is uh, just how unusual the last, particularly 150 years, have been. Mm-hmm. Uh, with, with Western powers, essentially, specifically Western European uh, monarchies, uh, who are all basically interrelated to each other, basically being able to run global affairs by themselves and their interests didn't diverge terribly and the fact that they had to have you know a 40 year long civil war over it is just it's it's mind-boggling um 
But for example, countries like uh, states, I don't want to use the word country in this particular discussion. I'm not an academic prude, but just in the context of this discussion, I won't say Keep it the word country. Yes. Got it. Because country has, has no, no academic, no scholastic uh, meaning. So the state of India has interests that are very complex. Uh, if you've been, just to give you an example, uh, obviously they're trying to show some support for Ukraine but also trying to balance that with a relationship with Russia, who they've historically gotten arms from mm -hmm. as they're transitioning to getting arms from the United States and trying to push back against China. In fact, they're blaming this short seller report and this BBC documentary on China. I couldn't believe it. Okay. I was like, who are they going to blame on this? Oh, it's China's behind it. I couldn't believe it. I, I knew but, it. Yeah, it is. China was behind it. Um, <laughs> you know, and, and then you have, of course, China, which is used to enjoying a, uh, pretty much carte blanche in that area you know it was really only till about the 1850s that that really started to go away uh you know so this is a historical blip and there's a lot of resistance to allowing some amount of adjustment to uh a world order that was clearly not capable of maintaining the specific balance there just weren't enough willing partners because what strikes you about the balance of power is that it was really it was it was a question of was everyone going to be willing to compromise over certain peripheral interests or was there going to be a war? And when they wouldn't compromise, there was a war, um, you know, in Crimea with Russia pushing Turkish interests, for example. And of course, the breakdown of European Turkey, you guys did a great job covering that in some of your other podcasts, uh, because that, of course, was central to the making of the World War One conflict there. Mm -hmm. But of course, there was also domestic German politics to consider which I think there are a lot of great parallels with Chinese nationalism today, where you have a largely authoritarian regime that stokes a certain amount of nationalist ardor that it then can't quite deliver on. And then it faces the prospect of, you know, a slow trying to manage the deflation of expectations, you know. Um, so it, it's it's all very relevant stuff. And so I'm, I'm glad that you guys do such a great job talking about this stuff and and I'm glad to, glad to see where else we can take this because again, it's it's just such kind of a an open, open kind of discussion. But yeah, yeah. I mean, th thanks for that. We, we we try our best, but honestly, you're you're the you're the scholar here. You know, you've you you come with receipts. <laughs> you know, we're just yeah, uh, we're just we're still just random guys on the internet. Yeah. We're yeah, exactly. still random guys on the internet. Just you know, who the <laughs> hell are we? You know, that's <laughs> if you look at our reviews. But it's, you know, some people get some value out of it, which is nice. But, you know, there's a point to it. We are still just random guys on the Internet. Um, but I guess in terms of just like going back to the World War One, you see these that you see these arguments poking their ugly head back in like today's time in modern times. It's 2022, 2023. And you, I mean, they're not the same arguments, but they're kind of similar in, in the case. Like, you know, when we were doing this, the episodes on Serbia about Serbian nationalism and um, just like the the rise of this really specific ethnic nationalism that kind of that was that encompassed like Serb Orthodox and it, it really um, kind of reminded me of the current crisis in Ukraine um, but almost in like opposite it, they were almost like role opposites where you know Austria-Hungary was more playing the role they were kind of like the Russia and then uh, Serbia was more of like the Ukraine 
But like the Serbian nationalist groups remind me a lot of the, the modern day Ukrainian nationalist or, or, or vice versa. So that was kind of like one of the inspirations. Um, but, you know, you get those themes of like like a lineage that goes back, um, you know, thousands of years in some cases. There's always kind of like this link to a greater day. What, what I actually think it may be worth doing just to kind of draw some boundaries is that going over the differences between a pre-modern state and in a, then a, then a modern state. So when I say pre-modern, like the time before a nation state, um, because if you went back into, you know, if you spoke with some German uh, bishop king or whatever, um, and you told them about the United Nations, they would look at you like you're crazy. They'd be like, what? What? United what? So, uh, yeah, like a nation. So let's let's kind of lay out what a pre-modern state looked like versus you know a, a you know a modern nation state that we all uh, that we're all surrounded by today. Great. So I'll I'll do just a little bit of rough periodization, which I don't like to do, but in this case, let's just think of it as kind of helpful, and I think maybe it will help too in terms of connecting uh, the history, especially of the world outside of Europe, which though I don't touch on in the chapter is of course uh, massively important. Uh, to developments in Europe. So pre-modern Europe, uh, let's just say that's pre-1500 Europe. So uh, this this is a, we're leaving the high Middle Ages, right? The Crusades were not that long ago, 200 years ago. Um, the state, the, the pre-modern state is, is very, very weak. There, there are a combination of reasons for that. One of which is that these hereditary kingdoms are very, very split among uh, different uh, stations of landholders with different obligations, various church properties, and it's all very, very interdependent on one another. Everyone needs to fulfill their social role. And the, 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 the king, the, no, the nominal head of this kingdom, is very limited in their ability to uh, enforce uh, their, their will. Uh, they just are not able to project power very well. Um, part of that is, is a combination of lack of infrastructure. One of that, part of that too, is um, just a function of a lack of other retainers. I mean, the, the king can't just go to the population and be like, hey, you know, you're all going to join my army and we're going to go subdue these nobles and we're going to give more of their wealth to me. But then you're still going to work for them, you know, and be serfs. But I want a bigger cut. So it was more of a negotiation thing uh, that was going on there. And there were peasant uprisings. Uh, very regularly uh, that needed to be put down. And so most of the time, the small professional army that you had was mostly hired mercenaries, a few, uh, you know, sword nobility, your, your lords, your retainers. Uh, you know, the church's ro social role, uh, you know, was sort of to be, uh, well, I, I don't want to be too cynical about it. Let's just say, from all observable purposes, the church's role was to administer a more or less passive peasantry, um, not reading the Bible. Because the thing is, is in Latin Christendom, there was no reading the Bible, really, that you were being taught the Bible. One of the really revolutionary things was when Luther and his Protestant followers published the Vulgate Bible, a lot of, you know, Catholics who previously hadn't had access to this couldn't read Latin, probably couldn't even read their own dialect for that matter, but we'll get to that. Um, they learned there were all sorts of things in the Bible about uh, rich people, you know, not being good and stuff. They hadn't heard any of these things. The priest had left all these things out. So very strange. So revolutionary times. Um, 
the Thirty Years' War, of course, is something that we need to talk about because that was integral to, to, to the state-making process. But one thing I want to emphasize here is, as I hope is clear from all the different things I'm, I'm mentioning here, very rapid fire, is there is no one single thing, no one single process person that you can point to in, in any of these places and say, well, this is really where all of this comes from. It is it's a confluence of process. For example, some of the, the sort of proto-capitalist forces are going to develop out of medieval guilds, free cities, obligations that developed from, you know, late antiquity, I mean, the early Middle Ages, and just sort of were fusions of customary law of like Frankish and Gallic tribes and other, uh, you know, uh, interlopers with, you know, parts of, uh, you know, uh, what remained of Roman imperial law, and then, of course, the church. So, I mean, it's very, very complicated stuff, and, and what you basically emerge is are several rather powerful kingdoms that have consolidated themselves by virtue of warfare and marriage. Uh, the most powerful of these uh, are, are the, the, the Frankish state that emerges, the modern state of France, and then the Habsburg holdings. Now, the Habsburgs go from being kind of a nothing family to being kind of masters of, of Europe. If you look at them in the late uh, Middle uh, Middle Ages, uh, they're, they're basically nobodies. Uh, fast forward the clock to around the time Columbus is setting sail, they're, they're getting ready to, to go into domination mode. Um, one of the interesting things about early modern state formation is if you could somehow get access to loads and loads of money, you could really jumpstart the state building process because what'd you need? You need uh, an army so you can go subdue all those troublesome nobles who don't want to pay taxes, right? You need to maybe go take some church land, and that might involve stepping on some toes. And, uh, you know, so the church will throw its support to the nobility. And, you know, the Fronde, the, the French uh, civil wars will happen uh, when the Sun King is trying to subdue his nobles. Um, because basically, the, the state needs some revenue. It needs to compete. Because one of the things that Columbus is doing when he sets sail is the reason they're trying to find an alternate route to these Spice Islands is because the overland route, which was always very, very expensive and made these, these trades exceedingly prohibitive, uh, you know, except for, you know, uh, sort of the upper part of society, was the, the Ottoman seizure of Constantinople. And so fear of being blocked off, uh, you know, Venice was the ma major entrepot there. They're trying to go around they eventually start trying to go around. The Portuguese realize we need to go around the Horn of Africa. So they, they and the Spanish start going around. But basically what they're trying to do is that they really, if you read about Henry the Navigator and stuff, he really saw this stuff as like a continuation of the Crusades. Um, so it's very interesting. The, the, the early um, conquistadors and stuff, they had this very crusader mindset. Um, yeah, they had a real crusader mindset. It really doesn't start to become hyper-commercialized, really in a sophisticated way, in my opinion, until the Dutch and the English get involved, um, which is slightly later, in the, in the later 1590s, early 1600s. So, but, yeah, um, those yeah, crusaders by that really point, had a hard-on for, for bringing Jesus to the, uh, to, to the indigenous the peoples. The cross uh, followed the sword, uh, yes, indeed. And, and of course, that, that would pre present complications, ultimately, for the institution of slavery and would lead to sort of a, a complication of it in some ways just because of the way the practice was, was developed. But one of the things that I find interesting is that Spain, because of its access to all the uh, mines in South America, it was able to basically just pour money uh, into uh, building up some of the 
outward manifestations of state power, but didn't have staying power because they were able to basically just swipe what was in essence a credit card, you know, to finance loans, to build up ships, because basically the, the problem was these new armies, these new navies were very, very capital intensive. And you had a very low savings rate because you didn't really have like a, a bourgeois class of, of merchants. That, that was the development that the commercial capitalism and that empire fostered. Um, so basically, if you, if you were the state, you had to go through a very intense period of renegotiation with your subjects, some of whom were armed. And as King Charles found out in England, some of them will kill you. And, uh, you know, he wasn't the first one to find out and he wasn't the last. But some were more successful than others. But essentially what happened is you had some renegotiations that happened. And new institutions were developed. Uh, the Bank of England was an import from the Dutch. And what it allowed England to do was finance uh, global warfare. Uh, basically, it was, a, it was one of the first central banks. Um, it allowed the government to borrow at very stable, low interest rates. When you look at uh, the amount of times the English crown declared bankruptcy prior to the foundation of the Bank of England, many times. Afterward, you know, technically a few times, but those were... So let me get this straight, because this this part of what you're saying actually really interested me, uh, especially because, you know, one of the one of the big questions that I had that I didn't really have a good answer for when we were doing, you know, the Spanish-American War stuff is like, why did Spain suck so much? Uh, by the time they got into those wars, right? Because like, it just felt like they just got steamrolled, right? They did. Uh, they did. And and you know this part of of you know what you're writing about and what you're talking about today, I found so fascinating. Like the the act of and and hopefully I've understood this correctly. Basically, what you're saying is a lot of some nation states had to you know negotiate, like you said, with their with their people, and in that process they made really strong systems to finance this the nation, right? Meanwhile, other people, other uh, nations like uh, Spain were just flush with cash and and like they skipped leg day, so to speak. They right? did. They, skipped they, they leg totally day. skipped leg day, political leg day. They did. And I love the credit card uh, analogy that you that you made, too, because, you know, when the bill came due, they didn't have the cash for it. And they, and they didn't, didn't have, to, have the institutions to find exactly, it. exactly, yeah. and th that that makes so much sense. And I, I know you were writing a bit about like the armadas and why they failed um, because they were just so damn expensive. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the must not take yourself too seriously, and six one since that matters. And what do I even say other than hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. But um, yeah. That's, that's really fascinating. Did, did I get did I catch that correctly? <laughs> yes, yes. And and of course, the Spanish government had a very hard time controlling its own, uh, you know, nominal subjects when they were in the Americas. 
a lot of times it was just conquistadors seizing land and saying, hey, this is mine now, and uh, if you let me keep it, I'll throw some coins your way. And the Spanish government was like, well, it'd be very expensive to go put down that, and that could turn into something, so sure, why not? Well, you know, what's to stop that, you know, new uh, landlord from deciding down the road, eh, maybe I pay him a little less, you know? What's to stop the grandson from not caring and just declaring independence, which they do? Uh, Frequently. (laughs) Yeah, it's very hard to maintain power over there, especially if you don't have a very solid uh, imperial apparatus, but financing that is very difficult. And these countries that, sorry, not countries, these states that underwent these processes did become much stronger. Uh, Granting subjects a say over how they're governed in exchange for more tax receipts, you know, it led to better governance, uh, you know, led to, look, look at England. I mean, look at the Dutch. The Dutch competed with Spain, France, and England for almost a century, and they only wound up getting crushed because the English decided there can only be one of us. You're directly across the channel from us. We must, we must subordinate you, um, so to speak. So, you know, and you look at um, how these processes play out, um, Spain does ultimately fall behind because they don't have, number one, the ability to expand their tax base. Um, They had a very, like a lot of evolved feudal kingdoms, there were a lot of tax exemptions. I I know the French Revolution is a good example because a lot of people are familiar with it. You know, all the wealth was held by the church and by the, you know, the gentry, or by the the nobility, but they were all basically immune from taxes for one one way. So you're basically just left to try and squeeze the peasantry as hard as you can. Well, that's just not going to work, especially not in a, in a, in a, in a, on a geography of, of the type of Spain's, especially when you have other states immediately honing in on the action, which is exactly what happened. So, so what you're saying is that we should tax the rich. <laughs> <laughs> not if it's going to finance wars. Okay, Because fair. that's what it finances. <laughs> right. And this is important because England uh, and, and the Dutch, they immediately took their newfound advantages and began to, to compete and to try and, uh, and, and this spurred competition between states. Uh, you know, these institutions conveyed a competitive advantage. These army reforms, new types of ships, new industrial processes. Uh, it led to, you know, it, the state making huge advance, huge uh, investments in all sorts of sciences and, and industrial wares. You know, a lot, some, some historians credit it with really uh, in some cases, creating the, the real strong foundations for takeoff there, that particularly England saw it necessary to protect its home market and basically just capture all these raw goods markets and to just you know suck in all the raw materials and just kick out finished goods and try and stay on the cutting edge of innovation. They weren't ultimately able to because Germany, which had been divided uh, you know, basically forever, there had never been a Germany, and much of Europe's stability was contingent on the area of what's now. So, when we say German, that's that's a very loose, not very academic term. Um, that for, for because if if you've traveled in Europe at all, you know that German is is the language uh, in in many uh, countries or many states, states. besides Germany. Besides Germany. And there was a debate. There was a debate. It's one. It's some of the most fascinating because Germany as a modern state was formed at such a self-conscious moment. The debate was so precise. It was so deliberate what they were doing. It was, okay, 
do we want a Germany that constitutes all the area that used to be part of the German, the Holy Roman Empire? Or would we prefer to exclude all the lands that don't have natural German speakers and then take part of what was Poland, uh, which was part of old Prussia, that mm-hmm. is? Uh, you know, do we want mm-hmm. you know, greater Germany, smaller Germany? Uh, you know, Bismarck himself was said to not want any greater Germany at all. He preferred Prussia the way it was, you know. Um, but but it was necessary to ensure the survival of the state because basically they looked to the east and saw Russia, which looked like a steamroller, and it was getting pumped full of French finance. And after it industrialized, you know, was a non-unified, loosely German confederation type thing going to hold up? Maybe not. And so mm-hmm. Bismarck made the decision that even though he wasn't a German nationalist, that the, the preservation of, you know, German, German, Germanness, I guess for like the German nation, you know, required a unified Germany. And he unified it in the way that he did to, make, to ensure that it was one dominated by Prussia and a very not undemocratic Germany at that. So, and add to that, you know, that the Germans were conquered by Napoleon, um, you know, decades, decades earlier, blown apart during the 30 years war. They were still arguing about who owed who from the 30 years war when the Congress of Berlin rolled around. It's really just the wars. It's just a complete war zone. It's, it's Germany's like the, the, well, it was like the, I guess Iraq, I feel like is a good analogy for it because like Iraq is kind of just like really strange state when you really think about the borders. Like, you know, you have for 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 centuries you had um, you know the Sunnis controlling a majority Shia population, and then it's flipped over on its head. The borders really just don't make sense, and it's this historic battleground. There's like how many horrible wars took place in Iraq over the past uh, you know three thousand years. Um, you know, one of the one of the latest being our war there. But prior to that, the Iran-Iraq war, it's just like this awkward borderland. And that's kind of what Germany was for so many decades as well. Well, mm-hmm. not decades, for so many centuries as well. Like difference is that Iraq doesn't have an economic miracle. Yeah, the horrible <laughs> religious war, like the horrible yeah. religious wars that, that kicked off after the Iraq war. You know, that's kind of like the modern day version of the 30-year war. Yeah. Yeah. And I, well, I think I think one important thing to note, because you just mentioned Napoleon, was Napoleon's invasion was was very important uh, because by by trashing both those confederations and uh ruining habsburg power there if you look at a map of uh the holy roman empire well it destroyed the holy roman empire it broke it up permanently and and so i mean you went from having uh a political entity dominating nominally dominating uh central europe that, that was thousands, thousands of entities, free cities, all these different things going on, tiny kingdoms, serious, you know, uh, states like Prussia. But if you look at at a map of it before and after, um, I mean, you already see the process of consolidation happening. And one of the things that strikes me about when you look at um, Eastern Europe, uh, you had mentioned uh, the Ukrainians, is that they sort of had the misfortune of, you know, having such a large nation, but being divided by so many other competing powers who just had more power projection capability. Their nation had built more institutions for ensuring its specific domination, if that makes sense. Like being preyed upon by the Austrians, by the Russians, by the Ottomans, 
uh, by the polls. Um, you know, and of course, some of that was deliberate Habsburg policy using, you know, uh, polls to, you know, keep uh, Ukrainians dominated in, in Galicia. But um, one of one of the things that strikes me too about Poland is if you look at old Poland, uh, Poland, Lithuania, is it was one of the most, I mean, most liberal in the classical sense. I mean, it was it was as almost as liberal as as the United States. Uh, on its formation. And it's telling, I think, that it, despite its very large size, if you look at a map, it was unable to withstand uh, the assault of a much smaller neighbor in Prussia, but which had been structurally organized to fight and to win wars. And I think that's an important point, is that states adopted these innovations in military tactics, in technology, in industry, in finance, and they did it to compete better. And the states that didn't do it or couldn't, like maybe Pol- Poland's central state was, was fairly weak. I mean, it was a fairly nice state to live in. Frankly, it was, you know, like I said, it was probably the most liberal state on the continent at the time. But it was destroyed, um, you know, by these two powers who were, you know, uh, not liberal, obviously. Um, if, you, if you know anything about Prussia or Russia, I mean, Russia was a was an autocracy and um, Prussia, of course, trended toward absolutism. And of course, now we're talking about the period that, that's called absolutist in history books. And just in case there's any confusion, this is not absolutist in the sense that, like the czar, you know, was literally absolute. Like his his word was just, you know, he could basically rule by fiat. In in Western Europe, that's talking about the, the attempt to create absolute rule, the attempt to centralize power, uh, eliminating internal tariffs. For example, if you, Danny, were a winemaker and you wanted to go sell some of your wine to Henry, who owned a wine shop about 15 you know, miles away down the road, several towns, you got past some bridges, you might have to pay like nine different taxes or tariffs just to go bring him the wine that he was going to sell. So part of the state building process was rationalizing it. That meant getting rid of everyone's privileges. It meant breaking the power of the guild. It meant curtailing the power of the church. Um, it meant curtailing the power of local notables. You know, I don't go into a lot of specifics in the book because a lot of it's very esoteric. Like the first Tudor monarch sent an army and raised several castles in Lancaster in you know 1402 or something, and it's like a one sentence and it's like a one sentence thing in this whole paragraph. And you're supposed to understand from that that like. Well, why did he destroy castles in his own kingdom? That doesn't make very much sense. Like, no, those lords were being rebellious. So to make sure that they decided to stay in line, he went and ripped down all their castles so that if they tried to mouth off again, they couldn't go hide in their castles uh, when they showed up to cut them all down. So, you know, again, it's it's very complicated process. And I think the most interesting ones are the ones that you can see. You know, Italy is another great one. You know, when Italian unification happened, Italy's only fa- about... fascinating case study. Is, yeah, <laughs> is, is is one of the most interesting ones because it's actually kind of is very because um it, it's it's very uh, I don't want to say polar opposite or maybe you can just give me your insight, but you know it's it's like a different setup than France, for example. France has like that one super culture that kind of emanates from Paris and it kind of slowly envelops the rest of the rest of uh, the rest of France 
and Italy, it's like a bunch of different city states, you know, and you have like these different city powers that are, you know, constantly rivaling with each other. So it's like a different dynamic uh, when these states form. Yeah, definitely. So, so the French state was was rather organically grown, developed out of the the late Middle Ages, medieval period, Frankish kingdom. King Louis, the Sun King, suborns the the nobles to him. Basically, he creates all these offices that you can compete for that are hereditary that come with these huge salaries, and you know you're just you're basically competing to get fat and happy. So, in exchange for that, they they basically allow him to take military control over the country. So he is now, even though there's still some, you know, technological limits to how fast you can deploy troops here, there, or somewhere else, you know, he is able to effectively control what's seen and recognized as a legitimate projection of violence. And that's critical because if the uh, Count of Savoy or something in the northern part of Italy had like taken some cavalry and crossed over toward Venice or something like that, could be construed as like a very hostile act, you know, and we think of these as Italy. But of course they weren't. They were Italy had seen no unified control since the fall of the Western Roman Empire. So I mean, it, it was constant. And if you think about it, it's its location. It's highly exposed. It's highly exposed. So you had a lot of uh, back and forth across with the African coast, Ottoman influence. You had Normans. You had a uh, Habsburg influence in the northern part of it. So you had very different. Um, cultural legacies and institutional legacies there. And those persist to this day. Like there's a not inconsiderable movement in the northern part of Italy that doesn't really want anything to do with the southern part of Italy, the part that spent considerable time as a part of either France or the Austro-Habsburg Empire. Um, there's actually a movement to like bring back the, the Lombard language. Um, and these are these are dialects that have not been out of use by the masses for a very long time. In fact, Count Count Cavour, who ultimately unifies Italy in the 1860s, didn't even speak what we call Italian. Uh, he 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 could speak. He could speak. Like Zelensky not speaking Ukrainian purposes. Right, they had to learn it basically yeah. as an adult. Well, yeah, he learned yeah, it. Uh, he only a handful. Italy is an extreme case because at the time of unification, less than five. For what these statistics are worth, these are 1860 statistics, but like less than 5% allegedly spoke the language of, of, of what we call Italian today, and it was around Florence, um, which makes sense because this is where, this was the cultural heartland of the Italian tradition. This was the seat of Italian art, Italian poetry, literature. Uh, though it had not been a state, a nation state, in the in the sense that we think about it today, it did have a conscious Italian heritage, culture, literary art. Uh, you know, it was very bound up with with Catholicism as it is today. Um, but there were there were there were a lot of local prerogatives. It was very broken up, and essentially, it it took war. Um, the the wars of Italian unification. There were three of them, just as there were uh, multiple wars of German unification. Um, there were decisions made about who was in and who was out. Sometimes the decisions were made based on geopolitical calculations. Uh, you know, we need this because it's a more safe frontier, or we need this because it's really rich land or it has these natural resources, or we need this land because it has some of our uh, ethno-linguistic kin there, or we don't want this area because it doesn't have our ethno-linguistic uh, kin, as we talked about uh, with the German exclusion of, of some of the Austrian domains from from Germany. So again, it's it's very complicated and it depends on 
you know, I, I think a lot of it's still shaking out. I mean, I think, you know, the, the Bosnian wars uh, of the 90s are, again, I just they're, you feel morbid saying it, but they're fascinating to really just examine politically and, and situationally. Um, because there's never really been, I mean, really it was just the cold war, you know, Soviet communism, the big blanket got thrown over there. And as you guys did a great job talking about in your Yugoslavia episodes, you know, and a lot of those really, because again, you can, you can hearken back to the kingdom of Bulgaria, Romania, you know, you can find all these things in the history, you know, you can trace all these things back and it's, it's really a question of whose groups are able to cohere and effectively produce institutions that will, you know, protect them and, and further their interests. You know, it's a good book. Just, um, you ever you ever read the book The White War? Well, the White uh, no, War, no, the White War, the no. White War, the of the uh, the Italian Front in World War One. So, like the war that took place in the Alpine in the Alps, where From it was just, arms. It was it was just an absolute. It was just as bad as the Western Front, but it just doesn't really. It's not really covered as much. Um, but it was an absolutely ugly, brutal war between Italy and, and the uh, Habsburg Empire. And there was this really kind of gross dynamic that was going on where a lot of the officers were from northern Italy and a lot of the cannon fodder were from southern Italy. So it was like the, there was a dynamic of northern Italians using the southern Italians as, as cannon fodder. And in that war, there's like a lot of cases of just men really being thrown at the meat grinders for just such dumb reasons. Like there's the most cases in the Italian front in world war one of Austrian Hungarian soldiers saying like stopping their firing because of just how many bodies were stacking up and them just saying, go home, stop. It's like, you're, this is crazy. Go home. We're not doing this anymore. It's, it's like this, this heritage that's still there. And what's interesting about Italy, because my wife's family is Italian they're from Naples and they have this superiority complex over people from Sicily. It's like very funny. Uh -huh. The more North yeah. you go, the more, the more you feel like you're closer to God or something. And the more South you are, you know, the more that, you know, I don't know, you're part of Africa or something because well, Naples, Naples was a regional power. Yeah. They were kind of a big fish in the small pond there. So they, they would probably like to lord it over the Sicilians. I think that's, that's where it comes from. <laughs> And um, it's just it's it's interesting, like um, that you know it's like oh he's Sicilian, like that's always something. It's like oh he's Sicilian. What do you expect? <laughs> or it's funny you get this thing where it's like because I, I grew up in New York, so I'm obviously around a lot of Italians, and they you'll, you'll get somebody you'll be like oh man she's Sicilian she should know better. <laughs> like, like her ethnic mean? identity makes her know better about something to behave <laughs> like, yo, or it could be anything like yo she's Russian she should know better man she's Colombian huh. she should know better she's Puerto Rican she should know better yeah <laughs> it's just pick just pick a nationality and that that quote has been said but right. I guess I guess to pull the pull this this back uh because I think an interesting concept is just the mechanization of 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 integrating people in the first place, because we're talking about pre-modern societies where it's, it's peasants. Most, you know, most people are illiterate peasants. Um, you know, there's, they're, they're, uh, you know, um, cultural is more influenced by their local regional, whatever village chief or village noble or whatever their ruling party is. 
Um, you know, there's a lever, there's a there's a level of neglect between them and the state, or there's not even in some cases there's just not many interactions between them and the state, where there's not this bond that really forms. But then you get and you kind of see this is this is the outcome of World War One, where you you finally see like, oh wow, we got these powerful states, and now let's like fight them together, and you get this horrible thing that millions of people die in. But what I guess. What is the main? What are the main mechanisms that states use to create their people, per se? Like, how do they involve all the people into a national identity? Well, that's several things that you said there form a really solid introduction to these these following comments. Then, because illiteracy was a problem on a number of levels. Number one, it's it's hard to foster a common story, a common narrative, if you can't uh, write it down and disseminate it. Um, it's just not possible to tell the story enough times. You can't count on it being accurate enough as it gets passed around. Big game of telephone, that's no good. That's no good. So it's also a problem as you're trying to create a more industrialized society. Now, the Protestant Revolution was was huge because it, it kickstarted literacy in Europe because it said it, it emphasized the written word. So literacy became a religious duty. It was your duty to learn how to read the Bible in whatever your particular vernacular was. And so that that was a huge kickstarter to literacy because then it was a simple product of getting the church on board and uh, you know that they could be leaned on to allow certain things to happen even in Catholic countries. Uh, I can't tell you how many times the king of France kidnapped the pope and, you know, <laughs> beat him up, intimidated or had him killed or occupied a papal state or Avignon or something like that. So, you know, um, but All uh, just because he wanted to get a divorce, right? <laughs> well, no, that was that was the that was that was that was England uh, pulling away there. No, this was <laughs> oh, just yeah. stuff to like just assert who's who, you know, you th- we're a Catholic country and you think you have pull. But let me tell you something. We're not Spain. You know, you, we are not the Habsburg Empire. You know, we're, we're Catholic, but I'm in charge. So there was a series of smackdowns between the Pope and the King of France, and uh, the King of France came out very victorious. Well, France, they, but they France was good, never, never in the 30-year war, they weren't they saw on that the, it was, the, the Catholic side. They took the side of the Protestants. For geopolitical yeah. reasons, yeah. Yeah, they to get at the Habsburgs who were encircling them. Yeah. Um, which is, again, another, another just contingent fact of history, you know, just kind of what if. You know, but again, there were institutional reforms that needed to happen. And in the case of the eastern part, the the Austrian part of the Habsburg holdings, the big problem was that it was impossible to create this effective nationalism uh, for the reasons that I'll go into in a second, because to go back to what Danny was originally asking me about. So so you need literacy. And so that was great. You have that. Uh, You also need that for an industrial society. Uh, You need people who are literate and numerate. That requires schooling. Schooling is an excellent place to uh, instruct young people, not only in numeracy and literacy, but also in proper forms of uh, patriotism. And, uh, you know, the idea of flag worship, I don't know if they still have kids, uh, you know, in all the classrooms saying, you know, God save the queen and stuff, but that was that was one of the things that was introduced uh, following the union. Um, you talked about the, uh, the kind of uncomfortable dynamic of northern officers ordering southern Italians into battle as cannon fodder. The British Army is a great example of that. I mean, they kept Ireland poor and impoverished on purpose and basically just conscripted all their, you know, young men to fight and die for the empire commanded by the, you know, officers whose families were expropriating them and oppressing them. So that's awkward, too. 
uh, you know, just while we're mentioning it, that popped up into my head. But um, yeah, so you, you basically you need to create those those rituals. Mass schooling is very important. Uh, conscript armies, conscript armies are important. So the move from from professionalized armies to conscript armies comes about during the Revolutionary Wars period. This is the French Revolutionary Wars. Um, again, the, the 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 wars prior to that were largely fought by professional armies, or you know you had some guerrilla actions here or there. Um, but really, it was the mobilization of the masses, and this helped really kickstart French civic nationalism uh, because it be, it was very. Uh, it was very easy to kind of forge it in that revolutionary furnace of, you know, war fever. Um, but they basically put a gun in everyone's hand and, you know, everyone whose hand they could and everyone who could for- who they could force to and say, this is your, this is your state, not the king's state. And if you don't fight for it, you know, we're not going to have one anymore. And that was a very compelling idea. And no peasant had ever been faced with that prospect for like, wait, this is my, this is our, our land. This is, you know, it was a revolutionary idea and it was very powerful. And, and Napoleon's empire was able to, you know, manipulate that in certain ways and, and to sort of capture the wind of the historical sails and apply the the miracle that is quantity to the battlefield and uh, crush everyone. And so that prompted the reorganization of a lot of other militaries and a lot of other states who realized that if we're going to effectively fight off and compete with the French, we need to make some changes, which is what happened. Uh, of course, the French ultimately lose and are made smaller and somewhat weaker um, as a result of, of the, the Conference of Vienna, which is in 1814. But this, this sets sort of some, some norms that are going to be followed to try and keep the peace following this, this period. Uh, the 1789, for those who are not familiar with this, from, from 1789 to 1815, there was basically permanent war all over Europe in various parts, on the high seas, in the colonies, all over the place. Even before Napoleon comes on the scene in the late 1790s, there's just war everywhere. And it's, it's a period where there's a lot of different changes that are made. And uh, so it, it's really just about trying to compete and survive. And when they contain France, uh, it is basically decided that, okay, we all need to focus first and foremost on not allowing ourselves to be overthrown by populations who have now had a taste of nationalism. This idea that, wait, all people have the right to be, because, you know, they're, they're invading these places like the Habsburg holdings, which are filled with, like, Croatian, Serbs, Venetians, Italian, like, just a whole smorgasbord of different people. And these French soldiers are coming in, and destroying the local institutions of power and throwing up their own. Well, of course, when French power retreats, those also retreat. And when the Austrians try and reassert power in those areas, they're met with a lot of resistance by these awakened national consciousnesses. And so this is going to lead to a lot of tension. And when 1848 comes along and there's the springtime of peoples and there's just revolution everywhere across Europe, the Habsburg Empire is going to get hit really, really hard. To the point that they're actually going to have to call in the Russians to maintain the monarchy. So you're saying that the the French red pilled all of Southern Europe into uh, creating uh, nation and states Central Europe. Europe. Oh yeah. yeah, and Central Europe. Yeah, uh, I wouldn't say. I, I would say that in some cases the the desire was very much alive. Of course, Poland had only been extinguished a few years before, 
It was actually actually the third partition, the third and final partition of Poland happened in the 1790s. the The problem was number one, whether or not uh, the people in question were faced with an effective form of suppression. So, it, again, it was it was a, ultimately, for example, the Austrians decide we need to basically grant the Hungarians dual status with us, right? But of course, this precipitates a, a whole other range of problems because the, the, the Habsburgs had decided the way to manage this isn't to come down with the hammer. As long as they're paying their taxes and saying hello to the emperor, we're cool. We're going to allow for cultural autonomy within the empire, basically, right? So if you were an officer serving in, in, in if you were an officer serving in the Austrian and the Habsburg army, you know, you might need to know how to command someone who speaks, you know, some form of Italian, Serbo-Croat, you know, whole whole range of languages. So it, it led to them not being a particularly effective fighting force, as you can imagine, um, when compared to something like the Germans or the French. Well, uh, so you, you've you've outlined at this point, you know, a bunch of what I'm seeing as common threads, and this I, I imagine is kind of the whole purpose of. Of, of the study that you're doing in the, in, the, in the book that you're writing. But a few of the things that I'm hearing so far are, you know, the, you know, early ability to negotiate with the population to be able to set, um, set up these financial institutions to support the state, right? Uh, to be able to grow very specifically militarily to either defend yourself or conquer strategically. Um, and then there's this, you know, a uh, uh, cultural and educational component, right? The, the, the ability to grow literacy to grow the nation, right? You, using literacy both for uh, a way to have a, a common, you know, tongue, but also to, I don't know, brainwash people, <laughs> or maybe not necessarily brainwash, but like to, to peddle the the narrative that that the condition them. Wants. I think is a good word. Exactly. Exactly. What other steps or common threads do you see as, you know? Things that that successful nation states had to go through or or put into place in order to be successful. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more— we answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The Nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. On weekends, we dive into the industry shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, and of course, stock ideas, plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts.
Well, I think the verdict is still very much out on this. These are very new creations. And especially in the in the democratic capitalist liberal form, it's very, very new, uh, mm-hmm. you know, really like 100 years old. And if you think about the processes that we're talking about, you add to it uh, industrialization, you add to it the improved um, food intake mm-hmm. that comes from its interactions with the Americas. Uh, especially when the United States becomes a big exporter and, and you know, globalization starts happening and, and global trade is making everyone much richer. Populations are growing. Um, liberalism, nationalism is in the air. These governments uh, who've managed to hold on because, yes, the, the French Revolution uh, is, is an important event, but let's remember it ends with the reestablishment of the monarchy. And when it's overthrown in the 1830s, it's for a new monarchy. Mm-hmm. And when it's overthrown again in 1848, it's replaced with a republic that only lasts for like 10 minutes. And Napoleon's <laughs> nephew eventually overthrows it, actually rather quickly overthrows it. And the second empire is brought in and yada, yada, yada. So basically in the third, the and third he's captured republic, by the Prussians and then then yes. the Prussians march on Paris. Right. And the third republic is, again, very much wrought uh, with this social class tension of the old you know, the old privilege, the old wealth, trying to keep the masses out of government. And England is undergoing the same thing. Um, the Reform Acts of the 1860s, really, I think, I think the reason that Great Britain survived as long as it did is because they always seemed to just be right ahead of the punch. It was like right before things were going to blow up, they introduced some reform and like, threw a token to the masses or something, you mm-hmm. know, did it in the 1830s, did it in the 1860s. And when, when the big wars came that required a lot from a lot of sacrifice, that's when they started instituting things like the welfare state. Well, um, you know, basically as just a negotiation with the people, like, look, we need you to die for the state's interest. So we're going to give you all this stuff right. um, to keep themselves in power. Um, because of course, um, the division of wealth, that existed in, uh, you know, Edwardian Great Britain or, you know, high Imperial Germany was probably not what the average person would probably divide up if they were in government and they got a vote about taxes. So it was imperative to exclude them. And obviously I do touch on this in the book. Imperialism became a way to deflect the pressure for more democratic changes to society. And liberalism had no defense against this, essentially, that if everyone was entitled to participation in politics and if everyone had the right to self-determination, um, it was it was very, very difficult to justify. And it was very easy to demonize uh, certain states, uh, you know, like the Habsburgs. Um, it, and of course, there was a lot of racism involved. You know, everyone who wasn't part of, you know, a handful of states was, you know, not fit for government and were just being exploited. But the 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 race for colonies really heats up in the late 19th century um, as Germany gets into the mix, as Japan gets into the mix. And especially if you look at um, German internal politics, one of the big discussions was how to prevent you know, basically the masses getting more of a voice in government. And basically, you have a series of war scares, basically, uh, where Germany is 
the government basically feels like it needs to be strong uh, for in order to keep up with the image of itself that it's that it's mythology and that it's propaganda has created mythology is important is an important part of of building the nation mm-hmm. and in building the state yeah and the german mythology you talked about the serbian mythology there's an american mythology of course and it is the not Alamo. and no one's mythology is self-reflective no one's mythology of themselves is their worst moments america's mythology is not you know bushwhacking sleeping indian women and children in dawn light raids right. in the middle of the kansas territories that's not what our vision of ourselves is. it's not a but very sexy very look much, right it's not sexy but that is what it is mm-hmm. and that is why we are here you know i mean the United States, I mean, to this day, it just baffles me that the people act like the United States is like this peace loving giant that just only has good intentions. I mean, mm. it's I don't I don't view it in, in, in a moral light in this in this context. I'm trying to be academic about it. Right. Because I am trying to see things clearly. And to me, from the outside, what it looks like is what Charles Tilly said. War makes states and states make war. And it is a self-reinforcing process mm-hmm. that creates interest groups that compete within the state to continue making war to increase the power of the state, which of course is also, you know, synonymous with wealth. I mean, it's, it it seems fairly obvious. You made, you made a really good example of this really early on in the show when you were talking about the Polish Lithuanian, you know, uh, um, uh, nation, you know, and, and saying that, you know, it was one of the more liberal places, one of the nicer places to live in the time. But it didn't survive because they just got smacked by, you know, more militarized places. So it became the self, you know, licking ice cream cone, so to speak, to be like, oh, well, you know, we don't have to be the best place to live. We just have to have the best army. <laughs> right. Yes, very, very much so. And, and of course, part of it, too, is is. Uh, well, it's it's neighborhood, too. Right. Mm-hmm. Like. All commentary about Russia aside, I just think it's 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 not surprising that Poland, in their domestic politics, has veered steadily toward a more toward a less liberal vision of their society, a less open vision of their society over the last fifteen since it's you know escaped Soviet oppression. Mm-hmm. It is a frontline borderland state that has lost its independence more than once. Right. to hyper-militarized powers. And Poland knows that it can't count on the words of the French or the British or the Germans or the Russians because they've tried all that. Mm-hmm. And, you know, so... I, not I mean, to yeah, today they're, about, like, they're Polish very politics, militant. Yeah. Just to show how this stuff connects, this stuff mm-hmm. it goes very deep, you know? Um, so, yeah, I, I find it telling, too, that most of well let me just say this i I think decentralization is is where you get most of your innovation from because you have because statism uh, creates uh ossification group think narrow-mindedness i think it's telling that much of the actual innovation that would kickstart (coughs) europe's takeoff what parts of it weren't imported from you know china asia generally were the product of the Italian city-states because this is where you had the most freedom uh, to experiment. 
there were a lot of different patronage opportunities. If there's only one patronage network, like in France, you know, by the time of like the, the 16th century or whatever, if your ideas are on the outs there, I mean, there's just, there's no place for you, right? Mm-hmm. I look at the fact that so many of the greatest composers of the period came from the Holy Roman Empire. I think to myself, well, that makes a lot of sense. There's tons and tons and tons and tons of patrons there. There's tons of different patronage networks. And that's what innovation and experimentation relied on was patronage. There weren't states dumping tons of money into R&D. It was the Medici family or whoever you had. So. No, that's that's. um that's that's real interesting that makes a lot of sense um i'm gonna read a quote from you from historian hans cohen cohen and um i want to this is like an interesting concept that we've explored and it's like that it, it goes over the two types of nationalisms that that develop in europe and, and i want to get your sense of this so he writes that western nationalism what with an essentially was western nationalism had a voluntarist approach, which developed on either side of the Atlantic Ocean, bounded on the, all right, I'm reading this incorrectly, but basically what he's saying is that <laughs> Western nationalism, he's right, because it's a book from 1944, so you know how yeah. old books are written. Um, but Western <laughs> nationalism takes a more civic stand, duty, uh, or there, it's, a more, it's a more civic character. And then Eastern nationalism, and when he refers to Eastern nationalism, he was referring to Germany, Poland, Ukraine, and Russia, they take on the the an ethnic dynamic, so they're more ethnic. They they, um, you know, they they value ethnic nationalism more than civic nationalism. And then he talks about like you know in Western societies or Western uh, nationalism, there's like the opportunity to become part of like the people. You know, you could you can basically apply to become British. You can apply to become French as long as you pledge loyalty to the state. But in you know, in Germany, Poland, um, in the Eastern Europe, you know, you don't have those opportunities. There's more of a premium on your language, um, you know, where you're from. And the reason for this was going back to Napoleon's war, this ethnic nationalism, this identity um, develops out of Napoleon's conquest. And it's actually a resistance to the progressive values that he brings through the Enlightenment. Yeah, I mean, I think I think there's a lot to that. Um, I, I write about this in the book chapter early on. I, I kind of look sideways at claims like that. I, I, do, I do hear the truth in it, but I also just look at state formation in Western Europe, in Great Britain, in France. There was tons of killing and forcing people to learn their language and, you know suppressing restless you know minorities and potential secessionist movements you know the making of the state you know now you know by 1945 or 1944 yeah sure you know it seems pretty voluntarist you know uh although then again i i suppose you you could you could definitely investigate that from a racial aspect um you know certainly with a lot of the the movements from from former colonies but yeah i i take your point very well there and you know, a lot of the sorting out that happened, you know, the, a lot of the sorting out that, that's still going on in places in, in Southeastern Europe is, is sorting out that just took place a long time ago in Western Europe. And so it's not under the microscope that, uh, you know, the French state went and killed 
you know, however many hundred thousands of, you know, dissenters in the southern part of, you know, France 500 years ago. You know what I mean? Like, that's just not relevant to the state's identity. And it never was. It was never a question that the state had to answer. By the time it was self-consciously formulating that identity, that wasn't really a question. Does that make sense? No, that makes and those sense. Who, and those who resisted it, those who resisted the proclamation of the Republic, were brutally murdered. Mm-hmm. Uh, you can look up the infernal columns if you aren't familiar with them. But like it was it was, you know, so anyone who, you know, any French person who's, you know, looking askance at, you know, well, you know, they're just a bunch of savage blood letters over there. Like, you know, te- it, it, they were really only limited, in my opinion, by their technolo- by their technological limitations. I mean, I think the only thing that pre- prevented those things from just becoming all out entire genocides was the fact that you, you couldn't kill people and get rid of them fast enough i mean humanity has always been just outrageously bloody and willing to kill other groups um that's the thing that stands out about the study of history to you is that there are no permanent uh you know friends or alliances or anything like that it's just it's a matter of interest so I certainly yeah. hope we can keep all of our interests in line so that we're not killing each other all the time. <laughs> well, you know, that would really be preferable, but it requires you to answer very uncomfortable questions. Yeah. And I'm just going to bring this up because I was just reviewing a few books, uh, doing some reorganizing. Clash of Civilizations. Controversial book. Sam Huntington wrote it back in the 90s. Preface this by saying for people who aren't familiar with Sam Huntington, he was basically uh, one of the authors of the Trilateral Commission's report. So he was very in with like, you know, U.S.-led world order type stuff. Mm -hmm. But even he took the time to delineate very carefully what he viewed as the fault line of true Europe. And he made very deliberate decisions about um, religion, for example. He viewed there being a very serious difference institutionally and that could be traced to the exposure of, for example, Latvia, Lithuania, and Estonia, those those little statelets there, that, that, they, that you could basically trace their links to the West through religion in a way that you could not, uh, you know, to, to Ukraine, for mm. example, mm-hmm. or, uh, you know, the area that's now Belarus. And so he literally drew a line right in the book, uh, Clash of Civilizations, where he basically said, this is where NATO should protect and this is all it should be. And the part of Ukraine that it protected was this big. You know, is that it was, the Lviv it part? Mm-hmm. It was Uniate. It was the Western Uniate part of Ukraine. Mm. Um, and he basically just said, look, we, we're, we're just going to have to hope that there can be a peaceful separation between these two in the same way that um, the Czech Republic and Slovakia, you know, peacefully separated, you know, which would have been the best case scenario for Yugoslavia. But again, it's, uh, you know, it's easy to sort of talk about these things in the abstract. When you get down on the ground, what, what strikes you is that there's difference everywhere. Um, not just in, in Eastern Europe, just in life generally. And so attempts to, um, you know, fit everyone into groups while, while certainly we, we intersectionally fit into many groups. I think it's important, like you said, to make sure that you're trying to direct your group toward compromising, you know, on various interests. But that, that requires making sometimes uncomfortable compromises. I mean, he calls right in the book for, you know, this is going to be Russia's area to reassert its influence if, if they want to. Is that a cool thing to, you know, back, maybe back in 1990, 
before 1996, it was simply scholastic to say that, but now it's a serious policy question. So, I'm, you know, I'm looking at that map our right interest, now, by the way, the, the interests of, yeah, the interests of Washington and Moscow and, you know, did not align there, um, you know, so, and there was just no compromise. And I don't mean to take Kiev's voice out of the equation there, but I mean, it, Germany and France didn't want any part of going along with this for the longest time. And that's, that's all public information. The, this, this map, this map is great, by the way, I'm looking at it and it's just Western. Western is the, the U S North America, your Western Europe up to, it looks like it crosses at Slovenia. I'm not, I don't see the border map. So it looks like Slovenia up to, um, the northern Baltic states, and then cuts Finland, and then Belarus. You most the vast majority of Ukraine, about ninety percent of Ukraine, um, all of the Baltic Baltic states are all Orthodox. That's what it's labeled in light blue. And then yes, yep. And then you have except for except for Bosnia. Oh yeah, Bosnia looks yeah. Bosnia is is that oh yeah. This little Islamic right? <laughs> yes, and so Turkey. And so, again, he just he very calmly just spells out like, look, Croatia is going to be sort of the Western bulkhead in that region. And then we need to keep Serbia or keep uh, Bosnia alive as a buffer state between Serbia, which will be part of Russia's orthodox sphere. And Turkey will help us maintain this balance there because they'll have interest in seeing the Bosnian state survive, too. And so... You know, it's like old times. Yeah, I mean, it's basically a description of, of why the war and the settlement happened, you know, and of course, you've done great episodes on that. So, but, you know, it's again, and it's fine to say it in an academic tone and stuff. But then when it actually comes down to comes time to make policy decisions about it. Number one, I think these decisions need to be happening in the open. We need to be having discussions about these things instead of trying to, you know, just make very emotional uh you know snap judgments um i i don't know some things are are pretty serious and you know president obama when he was leaving office he gave an interview to the atlantic that was really honest and he just said you know what it's just more important what happens there to russia than it is to us and yeah that's that's pretty much it i mean i don't know it's, it's tough as a liberal because you, you do want, you know, a Europe of a thousand states. You want a United States of a thousand states. But then you have a question, you know, are these going to be viable or are these going to be subject to penetration by, you know, malign outside influence, including military pressure? And that's kind of the problem that liberalism never was able to solve is globally. Who is going to make sure that while these tiny, tiny little states, right, like who, like realistically, Estonia, Latvia, Lithuania, like these couldn't exist without without outside powers backing them, right? Not if not if one of their bigger neighbors decided that they wanted them. But who's going to do that? Who's going to play that role uh, in order for us to decentralize radically, uh, you know, so that people can flourish and that they can have their cultural autonomy and that they can have their institutions? Or do you just have to hope that some kind of like very broad civic nationalism can work writ large? Um, there are several things that need to happen there, though. You need a state probably that's secular. Um, any state that's that's religious 
uh, or aligned with any one religious group is going to alienate any religious minorities. Um, one promising example, although it's hardly perfect, is Indonesia. Indonesia is an example of a state that kind of made itself out of nowhere. And yes, it's been bloody at times. Uh, I, we don't really have time to go into that, but the U.S. was involved, suffice it, suffice it to say. Um, you know, it's, 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 it's kind of a wild experiment. I mean, there's these thousands of islands all, you know, living together, all these different religions, different languages, you know, and they seem to make it work. Um, you know, but it, it really, it requires a commitment to peaceful dialogue. Um, because if, if people are too afraid to talk about and confront the real issues, then the fear mongers are going to win and it's going to come down to who can kill the most people. And I don't, I don't think that's beneficial to, to human liberty generally, because even in, even in free societies, it tends to create complexes. Uh, you may have noticed that it's been happening in our own society during the course of our lifetime. You know, the creation of the national security state has been wildly expanded during our lifetimes post 9-11. And certainly the intellectual thought climate has varied in its intensity. But certainly there have been times where there were certain things where you just couldn't say, even if they were completely true. Like Saddam doesn't have weapons of mass destruction and this whole thing doesn't make sense. That would get you called objectively pro-Saddam and, and effectively canceled and shouted down. And so I, I think it's very alarming that already you're seeing... Just as an example, the Washington Post, after running just tons of alarmist stories and like teasers about how dangerous the, the spy balloon was, they released two very sober pieces. They released two very sober pieces, one of them by, uh, oh shoot, he was a Clinton guy, I can't remember his name, but he's written two things about China recently that I really, Zolik, uh, Bob Zolik. Um, but basically just saying, uh, you know what, now that they're actually looking at it, it looks like maybe it was just a weather balloon blown off course. Yeah, it looks like there might have been a strange weather pattern there. It's like, you're telling me nobody checked this before? Which, of course, is a lo total load of bullcrap, of course. Like, it was a manipulated story. Um, but what do you do? Like, as a democracy, like, this is, this is, this is democracy, right? Like, what, what better way is there? Like, how do you get a better informed public? Because the thing is, is foreign policy is really important. And understanding the, his the histories and interests of other states and other nations, you know, like the Kurds, for example, uh, a nation without a state, the Palestinians, understanding where they come from, what their interests are, um, who opposes their interests, how that affects the United States' interests, that is a lot of work. When really, at the end of the day, nothing in any of those other countries really matters a great deal to our lives and wouldn't matter, um, except if the interests of a sufficiently powerful state intersect with those uh, that are being pursued by Washington. And I fear that we have a generation of foreign policy leaders who were brought up in the high of like the end of the Cold War unipolar euphoria and who spent the last 20 years bombing and blowing up helpless defenseless people all over the Middle East and Africa and who are used to just doing whatever they want and being arrogant and lying and getting away with it because, ah, what the hell? Yeah, I mean, think about it. No one went to jail over Iraq War II. Isn't that crazy? Very like, all right, I'll give you Afghanistan. All right, I'll give you Afghanistan. I'll even give you that one. Well, so, Saddam went, went to jail. Saddam. Not for very long. Okay, let me <laughs> rephrase that. 
none of the people responsible for that war ever saw any consequences. And it just, it, to this day, amazes me that the rules-based international order that, you know, Joe Biden and people talk about so much, it's like, guys, you got to understand that, like, the time to have established those ground rules, to give it a real fighting chance, that's already come and gone. That's already come and gone. Nobody believes that crap. Even most Americans, like, read, again, I sadly read a copy of the National Review this last week. That is the most honest magazine that you can read if you are an American imperialist or if you're interested in how the American imperialist thinks. Because there are no apologies whatsoever in that magazine oh, yeah. at all for our mm -hmm. behavior. Yeah. John Bolton, read his latest op-ed if you want to get a taste of how the American imperialist thinks. There's no apologies. They're not sorry. They don't even think it was a mistake, and they don't care. They'll do it again. <laughs> They'll do it again, and they don't think you're ever going to stop them. That is, that is the mindset. It's like it is what it is. We're the, we're we're the power. Like the world's a better place yeah. with us. What do you want us to go away? He doesn't. Honestly, I don't even think he makes the argument that the world's a better place. Well, he doesn't make because of us those arguments. He, he he just makes the argument that America is best served by us being in charge of everything, and everybody else better just deal with it or else. You know. Well, it's you know, horrible. like Paul, uh, uh, the author Paul Johnson, who wrote um, what's what's the book he wrote? Modern Times. Um, he wrote for National Review, and I I read some stuff that he wrote. You know, kind of making the case for for American hegemony, and you know, it's it's usually in the case. It's the the case is always um, the case that you see that I've seen is like, do you want this multipolar world like? it was in world war one where everyone just like is at each other's throats and there's all these massive wars that cause that's what you're going to get. If there's not some super global power like us who actually does have goodwill and they'll be like, you know, there's, we're not perfect, but we try our best and the world's a much better place with American hegemony, but without it, like look what happened prior to 19, the 1940s. And now we're here and nothing that horrible has happened yet. So, well, that's usually the argument you'll 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 hear. That is the argument. And I would say tons of terrible stuff happened. It just didn't happen to the people of Western Europe yeah. and the United States. <laughs> I know tons that's, of terrible stuff happened. That's, if you they leave lived, that part out. You know, in Indonesia, Vietnam, any of those places, it was bad. Yeah, but they don't count. They they <laughs> don't count, you're right. In American in proper American discourse, they are the people who don't count. Um no, I, I would say that there there is a lot of uh a lot, a lot of mistaken assumptions in that. Um, just to give you an example, like World War One happened essentially because the very um, undemocratic governments who were trying to maintain control of both their political power at home and their international position lost control of the dispute resolution system, basically. They, they had worked themselves into a corner, right, where they just could not get out of it. And Austria... Russia, Germany, I think it's telling that they were the three who precipitated the conflict and that they were also the three least accountable for it. This is not to fall into some kind of like democratic peace theory type nonsense because Great Britain chose to join the war and they were purposefully hiding the decisions that they were going to make from their public too. And those decisions and then the collective mistakes they make over the resultant five years basically precipitate the next round of war, which is Hitler. And so Again, I, I just think it's good to view those as one long process and so that you can't just pick out the Munich analogy. You know what I mean? Because people like to act like the problems in Germany, the, the problems in Europe, World War II, started at Munich, Hitler, given in to Hitler. It's like, that wasn't the problem. I mean, that was a problem. 
But by that point, there had been such a series of problems that it probably didn't matter anymore. War was going to have to come. Because unlike Imperial Germany, Hitler's Germany really was a massively expansionist, revisionist power who wanted a continental European empire. That is not what Imperial Germany wanted. Imperial Germany wanted little tiny slices of certain other of its neighbors, but that was really it. And then it was basically looking to basically suborn France to it permanently. Keep it there, keep everybody there, but like basically like the European Union. Germany is the powerhouse and it makes all the decisions and France gets to add its opinion sometimes and everybody else just goes along with it. That's, you know, the European Union accomplished what Germany was trying to accomplish with two wars, basically, if they could just get an independent foreign policy, you know. So I don't know. It's, it's certainly very intriguing uh, where we are at this moment. Um, because as I said, there's, there's, there's secessionist movements in Great Britain, in the United Kingdom, I mean, uh, you know, there's, there's very strong movements for regional autonomy in Spain, uh, in Italy, uh, there's still a significant amount of Provençal speakers in France. I mean, I think France is pretty solid. France, France has a pretty long legacy. It's pretty strong civic nationalism institutionally. Um, but no, actually I thought it was telling there was a German public opinion poll on support for the proposition, like who started the war, you know, how much was NATO responsible for it. The divide in German opinion was kind of telling. If you lived in the western part of Germany, you overwhelmingly thought that this war in Ukraine was Russia's fault. If you came from the eastern part of Germany, numbers were significantly reversed. Like almost something like 60% believed that NATO expansion had caused the war in Ukraine. Like that's an incredible difference, right, as a, as a result of the, the different legacy. And that wasn't even a long separation either so i i don't know it, it's hard to say whether or not all of these states will still be there whether the american state will continue to exist in its present form we were talking about puerto rico will puerto rico go will texas one day in a fit of yeah in a fit of angst just you know peak just succeed secede and we have a real constitutional crisis on our hands i'm jane perlez longtime foreign correspondent and former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. I've been a foreign correspondent in lots of places, Somalia, Indonesia, Pakistan, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I mean, China is not dropping anti-democratic paratroopers into Montana. But of course, we did see things like the weather balloon slash spy balloon riveting the whole country for a week. This is Face Off an eight-part series in which we'll take you behind the scenes to key moments in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. We'll speak with a diplomat, a spy, a tech reporter, a U.S. admiral, even Yo-Yo Ma. Plus, my pal and noted China historian Rana Mitter joins the conversation. We'll look at what's driving the two nations apart and explore whether anything can help bring them back together. Face-off launches April 9th. You know, I'm sure every empire at its peak felt like it was going to be forever. And I'm very conscious that I've lived through the apogee of American empire. Um, if we make smart strategic decisions, which I'm not a hawk, I'm not an American imperialist. But if we make smart strategic decisions, I see no reason why our general global preponderance, even within a broader concert of powers, would not still be fairly predominant. Um, I've written extensively about why I think this is pretty much peak China. 
and that in a long-term run, the U.S. will maintain a competitive and demographic and economic edge over China. But China does have valid interests, and it is going to be there. If China can survive the next 15 years, the next 15 years are going to be very hazardous. You're going to have a lot of economic problems, demographic problems, environmental problems. So she and uh, the rest of them, they have their work cut out from, and you know, I'm not entirely sure that that state won't disintegrate and that you won't have a much smaller China by the time 2040 rolls around. But if it does survive, what you'll have is a, a highly developed state and society by that point, uh, and a very old population, which the nice thing about old populations is they're not very revolutionary. They tend to be pretty easy to manage. So I think, you know, Washington is very determined to have it out with the CCP, it seems like. Um, my money would be on just playing the long game, seeing how things shake out. Um, but, you know, obviously China is a is a state that is uh, sort of a prison of, of, of other nations. There's tons of different little ethnic groups in China um, who, would, who would like to be their own their own independent entity. So we'll have to see what happens. It will depend on how well the Chinese state is able to suppress those. Uh, indoctrinate the people who are there. Um, they've certainly taken state schooling to to a new level, in my opinion. Um, I think they've kind of crossed over the line with the uh, with the reeducation camps. That's probably way too aggressive. Um, even if even if they're not sterilizing people, like actively like abducting people and like making them read this stuff, like that's too much. Yeah, that's too much. Yeah, like, there's no 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 question yeah, in my mind that that's that's I mean, already crossing the line. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I mean, and of course I say that though, and I always feel silly saying it because I'm I'm very well aware that you know the United States has done plenty of similar things, especially in terms of indoctrinating native populations. There's a, an old native school, what was a native school near here. Um, so I'm very aware of, of that legacy here. So, yeah, I don't well, know. I mean, just because you're aware of the legacy, you know, and, and, uh, all that doesn't mean that, uh, it precludes you from, you know, calling a spade a spade today, you know? Um, yeah, so. I just, I don't know what it helps. You know, so many people criticize it. So many people are out to fight China. I just don't know what it helps there. Certainly it's wrong. But these are the actions of states. Like I, I don't view their actions generally through a moral lens. I view most of what they do as completely ethically indefensible. Mm. Um, you know, I'm a Nozickian, like minimal state libertarian. I mean, I don't believe there should be no state, um, but I certainly think most of the things that the modern uh, progressive state does uh, totally infringe on on individual rights, and that's something you just have to deal with as a result of living here. But and it could and it's way worse other places, as you just said. Mm -hmm. uh, my fear is that uh, I don't know whether or not, uh, you know, the state where we currently reside can can withstand the sorts of contortions that another 60 years or whatever of Cold War II is going to require. Right. So, well, I mean, wouldn't wouldn't a natural progression of all of this just be one giant global state? Well, new world order, uh, boy. Again, again, uh, I think the goal here is is the autonomy of, of small groups. Mm -hmm. And so, so to me, like a world state that, that kind of, in my mind precludes, uh, the, the sort of individual autonomy, unless you're imagining like some kind of global, uh, you know, Austrian empire type system where there was mass cultural autonomy and stuff. I mean, the problem really is no one's going to surrender the monopoly on violence and trust their neighbors. Just look at Eastern Europe. Mm -hmm. Eastern mm -hmm. Europe will never, be okay with the United States leaving. 
well, ever. They weren't going to be okay even before Russia invaded Ukraine because the Germans and the French had either invaded or sold them out multiple times. And they know that, you know, their group identity, their survival depends on having a state. A lot of these states were formed after World War One, World War Two. They know what it's like to be, they, they understand firsthand what happens to citizens whose states are not strong enough to protect them. Or like the Jews who did not have a state to protect them and had nowhere to go. Mm-hmm. So it's vital. So, I mean, it's a, it's a thing to die for. Uh, I understand. Um, and I don't, uh, you know, I obviously don't uh, hold the hold it against anyone who's trying, you know, like the Taiwanese who are lobbying, trying to get the United States government to fight for them. Like, I don't begrudge them that. That's an intelligent thing. That's probably the best money they're spending. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like $20 million, you know, to Nancy Pelosi is worth uh, plenty of airplanes. I mean, that's a smart thing to <laughs> yeah, do. For sure. If I, were in, if I were living in a small endangered country and something was going down, the first thing I'd do is hire a, a good K Street lobbying firm. Like you've got to get Washington on your side. It's a very important country. It's the no matter what they tell you about China, like it's the only country state that has the effective ability financially, militarily, uh, you know, institutionally to to exert a multi-level pressure. China is developing a lot of those tools. It's been very interesting to watch how China has basically modeled its rise on the rise of the United States. And I think it's important that they've started building parallel institutions which do not include the United States. Mm-hmm. And that's our biggest danger is that these turn into competing blocks. Mm-hmm. Now, lots of lots of states don't want this to happen, but some of them are in the position where they don't get to choose. And so I think as Americans living in the empire, we, we have to make a choice because the citizens of China, uh, I shouldn't even call them citizens, the uh, residents of China do not have a choice. It's going to be what the CCP does. And I think we can trust that they just want to stay in power and keep enriching themselves by looting the Chinese state. Well, so, I mean, in, in fairness, yeah. Joe, when, when I when I referred to a global uh, 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 state, uh, the only the only instance I can see that being an, a reality is if there was an external force that that actually put us into perspective. <laughs> and of course, I'm uh, talking about aliens. So, well, well, well that's <laughs> what's funny here. is that you know that's what here, uh, so. Ronald Reagan. That's how Ronald Reagan broke the ice with Gorbachev. Yeah, he's like you know, sure. if aliens came, we'd all be on the same side. I mean, it's it's not wrong. Maybe he's, that's what it would take. You know, that, I don't think that take. would work. You know what? I honestly, I think you know, one state would sell out the other states to be on the good graces of with the aliens. <laughs> <laughs> no, really, I think that if like if, we, if aliens really thing. came here and we're like, all right, there's no match. There's there's absolutely no match. We're gonna be able to take them on. Like it, our monopoly on violence is over. Or like we're we're not the top we're not the top dogs on the block anymore. Don't you think our elite would just say, "Okay, can we get some of them lasers too? We'll enforce <laughs> yeah. your will." I think they probably would. I'm going to be honest with you. Yeah, they're pretty gross. Like, never I, trust anyone with power. I think, and they'd it. become part of the alien elite. They'd be like, "Oh, they look, would. I'm like the, the I'm the the warden of of the United States." It would just be another level of, you know, imperialism. Like, just, I mean, maybe, but but that's that's like that's assuming that the intentions of aliens uh, mirror the same intentions of human beings, right? It's entirely foreseeable that they literally come here just to observe, but the fact that they've made themselves known now suddenly scares the shit out of all of us, right? 
they might have no intention to make war with us, but we certainly w- might be a little spooked about their existence in general. So, you know, I don't know. We're talking about NORAD. NORAD would shoot it down and cause a, an intergalactic. One hundred percent, we would know, shoot it down. 100%. Yeah, w- without even asking any questions. No, they just shoot it down and spark an intergalactic invasion. Well, that's what I was worried about when. Okay, coming back to this balloon thing, right? Because you know, part of me really hates this this whole saga, but also part of me really, really likes it because uh, I imagine that there's been shit flying around in our airspace and in everyone's airspace all the time just period. And the reason why we don't know we see it is because we're not looking for it, right? We are filtering the the garbage out so that we don't end up, you know, targeting a plastic bag floating through the wind, you know? Uh, I bet that this has been going on for a while. I'm also a proponent that aliens are real, potentially, right? So I, you know, when the first balloon came by, I'm like, oh, that's definitely a balloon. And then when the preceding three unidentified flying objects were decided to just be shot down over, what was it, like Huron, like uh, Alaska, and somewhere in Canada, right? When those three got shot down, I'm like, yo, they're going to shoot down an alien by accident. Like, we're going to shoot an alien, 100%. We came in peace. (laughs) They're going to piss somebody off, some intergalactic community off. And And then there's going to be some intergalactic council, like, the Earthlings shot down one of our peace convoys. (laughs) Right, exactly. That's it. That's it too. You know, uh, when every when all you have are hammers, everything looks like a nail. Yep, that's right. I just don't see a lot of hope when you know <laughs> our State Department is more hawkish than our Pentagon. <laughs> then the Nancy Pelosi is going to meet with them. Like, I'm just going to meet with the aliens. I'll get you in on my stock trading in the U.S. I'll, with my insider trading, I'll meet with you. Just like th- how she I went on the Taiwan that... lobby trip. <laughs> we didn't. Yeah. Kept... Everyone was like, well, that's... Oh, she, she's, oh, why is she going to Taiwan? She's getting our allies, finally. And then, like, conservatives were finally like, you know what? Nancy Pelosi's finally showing the, some balls. And then you realized what the real trip was about, and it was just a lobby thing. It was just mm-hmm. a crude lobbying effort. And it was just, right wingers are so dumb. Like yeah, everyone's just really, so dumb. The conversations that we have about politics are just so stupid. They're Except for really the ones about creating aliens, a lot of complications. I think. I think they're just making everything worse. I mean, I don't know how you feel about the current Republicans, but I feel like they just have nothing to say or contribute, and so they just try and savage Biden at every turn. Like he's weak on Russia. He's weak on China. He's weak on balloons. He's balloons. weak on Taiwan. He's weak on Nord Stream. Just anything and everything. Oh, yeah. And they're just badgering him for just domestic political purposes. Like Kevin McCarthy the other day said he'd go to Taiwan just to show that he was as tough as Nancy Pelosi and nobody tells him what to do. And it's like, that's it. That's how we're all going to die. So Kevin McCarthy can show that he's as tough as Nancy Pelosi. It's <laughs> yeah. such a circus. Yeah. You know? Uh, so especially when. You, you just have the whole big thing lingering in the air and none of the corporate press is mentioning the Nord Stream attack at all. Right. You know, not saying that it was the U.S., but I do find it kind of weird. You're not saying it was not the U.S., though. <laughs> I mean, gosh, that would be that would be so crazy. Here's I, I thought it was the polls because I, th- I think maybe the U.S. knew about it, might even have given them a little hand, but like, the U.S. couldn't do that. To, like that would be that would be serious, man. That would be real serious. I, I don't think the Germans would stand for that. But if the Poles did it and the U.S. knew about it, 
it'd be like, oh, you you Polish bastards, you. And it'd be like, hey, well, you did kill a bunch of us and sell us out. It's like, yeah, we did. Mm-hmm. You know, so I, I, I and, and, you know, I don't know. I, I think I think the Poles have it written all over them. But well, you think it's the Poles? Well, their foreign wasn't it their ex foreign minister who took to Twitter afterward and was like, great job, USA. <laughs> yeah, um, that's funny. um Victoria Newland's uh, no, not just Robert Kagan. Um, somebody's husband did it. Uh, no, Samantha uh, Applebaum's husband. And Applebaum. And Applebaum. Husband, that's it was. He was like the the ex Polish foreign mm-hmm. minister or something like that. Hey, yeah. Henry. He said, "Thank you, America." Hey Henry, do you do you, you know we're we're at I think we're at a pretty good time. Do you want to like cut this one down and then, uh, you know we can continue this conversation, Joe, and and this will be Patreon only if you want to hear us talk about uh, Nord Stream two and or whatever else comes out of our mouths. But I think we're we're uh, we're at a good spot. What do you think, Henry? Sure. Why don't we end this one and then it can incentivize signing up for our Patreon. But first. Before we do this, you need, if you haven't filled out the survey yet, the Survey Monkey Survey is a podcast survey. And basically, the story goes is that we are part of a podcast network now. And we need to fill this out. They want to know so, who you are and, 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 you know, what kind of people listen to bro history. Even though we keep telling them, like, the show is called Bro History. I think you can guess. It's, you know, 90, it's 95% women in their 20s. Right. That's that's exactly what we are. And they that's just don't went to Sarah we've been, Lawrence. We've been hitting for for four years now. We've been hitting the, you know, the, you know, fresh out of college uh, female demographic. Right. You know, if you go to see, you know, if you see the similar shows with bro history, it's always like, um, <laughs> you know, juicy scoop. D- juicy scoop is that a show yeah it is juicy scoop is like our big competitor right they they talk about like housewives and and stuff like that and um you know there's a there's a show called bros talk about the bachelor didn't know that yeah it's about it's like guys who just talk about the bachelor i honestly think i'd be pretty good Whoa. at that show because i'm forced to watch it and I'm kind of a masochist, and I like I kind of enjoy it a little bit. It's like kind of like a guilty pleasure. I'm like, hey, you know, you can put on the Bachelor. I'll watch it with you. All right, we're getting um, off track. The survey. <laughs> all right, now getting off track. Please fill out the survey. It will help us a lot, and you will win. Well, I can't say you will win five hundred dollars, but you have a chance to win five hundred dollars in right. Amazon dollars, and that's better than not having a chance to win five hundred dollars in Amazon dollars. So uh, please do that. Help us out. You can also join us on Patreon. Um, All right, guys. Peace. Peace. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. Our show features our team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. And they'll help you make the most of your money while cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. You'll get clarity on strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts.